and welcome back to another episode of Underground Antics. Today is a very special guest. It's one of my favorite people. It's the wonderful Bill Tibbo. Um, thank you for joining me. Well, my pleasure, Shane. Now, Bill, uh, Bill, you have a, a very interesting job. Um, not many people in the world do what you do to some degree. And, you know, so for anyone who's listening, essentially what part of your work is, you're a social worker and a registered psychotherapist by training, mm -hmm. but you've spent the last several decades working in disaster management. Mm -hmm. And what that means, as far as I understand it, is when there are disasters either on a personal or like a family or a group um, level, you, you're the guy, you and your team are the guys who get called in to triage, to manage and to help people process how to go through a massive change that happens, like when there's a crisis. And um, I know that you guys did work on, you know, you've done like 9-11 project. You did that. You worked on various natural disasters and hurricanes forest fires you do a lot of work with the police and first responders and things like that but you also have a very thriving clinical practice where you manage this on a one-to-one -one basis mm -hmm. um and so today you know we're going to discuss basically how change happens for people and how disaster and crisis is inevitable for just about everyone and that it's a part of life and that navigating through that change um, and knowing how to do it is a really essential part of, um, how could we say, you know, finding the silver lining, learning the lessons, getting the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. to speak. Does that, uh, does that sound about it right does. to you? It does. I think it's probably, uh, <clears throat> it represents very well the way I think. Um, and I think the way I perceive the world has been shaped by the experiences that I've been part of and the people I've met. So I would say, yeah, I'm very much a silver lining observer, if that makes any sense. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it must be very difficult in one sense what you do because you spend a huge amount of your time triaging and debriefing with the individuals or the families or the corporations mm -hmm. who have gone through a massive disaster of any kind right and during those times people obviously have their lives uprooted and they you know don't know how to necessarily process what's happened how to deal with it how to move forwards into the future mm -hmm. um so i'm wondering like obviously people react differently right like different people different personalities different temperaments yeah. they handle change very differently um in your work like have you how have you uh, found that to be most obvious well if we're talking about those whom we've been able to assist and support uh, i think that your point's a very good one um <clears throat> one of the points that's important to understand and it's, it's it's truly applicable right now is that um, the people whom we might engage with might not necessarily ever come to see a person like myself for the most part their lives are working along in a pretty nice rhythm and they've done 
and paid attention to the things that they need to. So for example, these might be the people who economically are doing really well. They might be in very significant positions in corporations or in sport or in you know, the movie industry. Um, it could be anything, any particular profession. So they're doing well that way. They may have done <clears throat> a good deal of work in terms of uh, shaping and maintaining good relationships, either with spouses and partners or with their kids and so on. What the world of disaster taught me is that it can strike anybody. And the very moment it strikes us, it doesn't necessarily mean, obviously, that we're incapable people or that we're weak people. But when the disaster strikes us, it really does oftentimes strip us of some of the most important resources. And it tests us in ways that, for the most part, none of us have ever been tested before. I'm always aware, and I'm answering your question in a very roundabout way. Um, I've always been aware that the average individual at least in our country, who would be a second generation Canadian and beyond, where they might not have come from war-torn communities and things like that. When you speak with them around 75 years of age, they'll tell you if they identify crisis in their lives, they'll probably highlight two, maybe three. So this is not something that we're really practiced at. Now, there are going to be some situations where people, you know, work in emergency services or they work, you know, as medical doctors and nurses or they work in my field. So we can't say that. But the average person, that's the case. So the attributes Mm -hmm. or qualities in the individual that come out and attributes and qualities that come out in that individual social and support network that have never really had to be tapped into before. Pardon me, that's where I I test so much about the you know, the uh, influence the crisis has on people, but also, more importantly, the silver lining and all of those things mm-hmm. that evolve after the crisis has struck that can be pretty, it sounds odd, but eye-opening and almost part one. Right. It is, it is a really strange, you know, I don't know if strange is the right word, but often, as you say, like the most difficult situations that come up in people's lives have the most can have the most profound positive benefit after the fact you know during it's rough and it's chaos and um, emotions are flying but the greatest lessons and that things I mean the you know the silver lining like what comes out of it is often you know um, good not that it's to justify the crisis but that well it's hap- now it has happened. It's most of the time beyond your control. You know, life or the universe created this event and it's had this huge impact on you. And this applies also at smaller levels, you know, like losing your job or having a breakup or something like that, where at the time it does feel terrible and it seems like it's, um, you know, like very unstable and unknown through that you're as you say you're forced to find those resources within yourself and within your social community that can lead to some sort of positive change Mm -hmm. and often people just identify this retrospectively because at the time it's hard to gain perspective on it right um and so excuse me like last week i had a i had someone on and we spoke about 
how Viktor Frankl, you know, who was a um, psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor, how he, you know, changed the lives of so many people through his work. But that would only have happened had he gone through what he went through during the war and during the Holocaust. And so from that, you know, so many people's lives have been forever altered for the better. Um, but that did come as a consequence of him spending four years in a concentration camp, right? And so it is a weird balance of trying to find where that positive lining is, right? And I think that like right now with like the COVID situation, we're still like in the heat of it, right? And so what happens, how do you do, how do you, help people when the crisis is still going on, when it's not like this happened and now we're figuring out how to move through, right? At the moment, like we're we're in the middle of like an ongoing problem, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you, you know, what, what do you teach or coach people into dealing with a, the crisis today? Um, how does that well, work? Um, you're asking a couple of different questions and raise a couple of different points. Um, And I'm going to try and answer your last question if I can in just a moment. But there is something critical about what you just talked about. And it has to do with the evolution that people see themselves go through. And and it's not just themselves, but we talk about their social network. Sometimes it's their business. Sometimes it's their industry. And um, we, and I'll use this term purposely, we get blindsided by a crisis. We don't anticipate that it's coming. Most often, what makes a crisis a crisis is that it is a surprise to us. And so the, some of the resources that we have internally, or as we've said before, in the network around us, we, they, they haven't surfaced. We haven't actually even noticed that they were there because none of those have really um, had to be used prior to. And so I've had several, several experiences where that has occurred. Um, And I would probably say, Shane, eventually we're going to get to it, um, as to what it is that kind of keeps me relatively healthy. And I guess my wife would have an opinion about whether I am or I'm not here in this situation. But um, it's because I understand that I'm going to see, um, in most cases, the better part of people when we're going through these crises. And I'll see how people come together as groups and how people will come together as corporations. Um, and uh, I've seen this, and we'll talk about this, um, through the COVID circumstance as well. You know, mm-hmm. we've seen an awful lot of uh, um, resource surface. Um, of course, I think yeah. that that's, it's, it's critical that we kind of address that because that would be something that I always know is on the horizon. And so I'm not going to be obtuse enough to say to someone, well, hang on, once we get through this crisis, your retrospective view of this will be glorious, because it's not glorious. Because with every crisis, there's loss. But with every loss, there's sometimes some gain and some insight that's delivered. Um, Being a maritimer, I'm very anecdotal, so I'll have a tendency to give an account or two and I, I woke up this morning, and this is a, a perfect example of yeah. um, resources coming together and how it is that uh, where people focus and so on. So there's a, a woman I've had the privilege, the honor, I'm going to say, of working with <clears throat> over the past year and a half. 
and she's only about 51 years of age. She is, um, uh, I don't know that I've seen tenacity like this in my life, but mm -hmm. she's been through a good deal in her own personal life, in her relationship. Um, in that particular family, money is never an issue. That's not the struggle at all. Um, but she, about a year and a half ago, she was um, touched by breast cancer. And the cancer, unfortunately, has evolved quite significantly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been working with her, uh, it, trying to provide whatever support I can, and with her two kids. <clears throat> and um, this past week, she had to go for an MRI, and she subsequently was rushed into surgery, where she had to brain surgery as well. So things have just mm -hmm. spread. Excuse me. So of all of this, just thinking, okay, what's the silver lining Bill's going to pull out of this? Or more importantly, what's the silver lining that she pulls out of it when we have the discussion? Well, it was within, right. I'd say, an hour of her being told that she had these brain tumors and that she was going to undergo emergency surgery. And she's got an 18-year-old and she's got a 16-year-old. Wonderful, wonderful kids who rely on her. And what happened is her entire family, extended family, sisters and so on, surrounded her very quickly. The friendship network that she's developed internationally, because she's, she's relatively well-known, surrounded her very quickly. And they started to communicate on her behalf with one another, getting reports back, you know, providing support to the kids, um, supply, providing support to her. I got a message this mm -hmm. morning and she's still not communicating that her sister is of all of the things that transpired over the last few days in support of her and in support of the kids yeah and here's why it's so cool she has spent a lifetime being of support to others always that kind of right. individual who would do for others and didn't always receive but in this situation she knew she had to so a couple silver lines one those people who've been in her circle of support internationally have met one another. The kids understand how vast that is. They understand how important she right. is to everybody. She is reminded of how much she's loved. And if one can deal with a crisis and be surrounded with that knowledge, that's pretty good. I mean, that doesn't wash away the right. fact that she's got cancer by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not that obtuse. Of course, but yeah. she's not alone. And she'll mm -hmm. know very, very, very clearly that she'll never be alone and her kids won't be alone. So can you understand the way yeah. I think? I don't know whether that that is yeah. well with. <clears throat> no, you're right. And it it's remarkable how a crisis will transform a group or a community to, you know, come together to deal with whatever needs to be done. And particularly when there's, you know, love involved and people are doing it. Well, I mean, people do it for people they love, but they also do it for people that they don't know a lot of the time, right? And it, it seems to me that like when, not all the time, but hopefully when a crisis does happen, everyone who can and who's involved, they shift gears into this like, it's almost, it's like a different way of being where, you know, the past history and any, you know, like personal quarrels or um, mm -hmm. judgments or anything like that, that shit all just falls away. And it's just about like, okay, 
this is serious. Like, I'm just, how, how can I help you? Or what do you need? Or even if they don't even ask that, it's like they get together and they figure out a plan. I mean, I can see it like here, excuse me, in my own like community where when someone like gets COVID or something like that, all of the friends and things like that, like particularly if it hits a family, um, they all just like, before you know it, it's like everyone's cooking meals for the family for the next two weeks, right? Just like that. And I'm like, how? who organized this? And no one really knows, but everyone's got their designated day and their meal and whatever it is. And they just, they do it and they drop it outside or, you know, a safe um, transfer. Um, I mean, and, and that's like on a much lesser level. And then when people die, you know, like in the Jewish community, there's a lot of that, um, where people will just, uh, bring food. I mean, I don't know why that's the way to go, but I guess it's like, so that they don't have to worry about cooking and things like that. The people can, the mourners can just sit and, you know, do their thing. Um, but there is definitely like a sense of when, when the people come together it is beautiful, and now it's it's like a beautiful in tragedy, right? Like as you say, there's no not to discount the pain or the suffering of it, but it's it is a reality of life. You know, everyone gets sick, everyone dies, and that's just how it goes. Um, and contending with that, yeah, is difficult. And that I think where where you're very well suited to what you do is you do have this natural optimistic view about life right and you'll go in and you'll be like this is bad but how can we transform this or where do we find that silver lining that good that can come from this how do we help people get back to a place of potentially even a stronger place of you know approaching life and and dealing with things i've uh I think it's a very, very fundamental core belief that's existed from the time I was young. And right. I do run the risk um, of, I don't know, being criticized for that. Um, but I do know that it is true and it's authentic in me. So when I grew up, my mom and my dad were both war vets. Uh, my dad was World War II in the Navy, and my mom was with a volunteer at the Red Cross. And subsequently, the two of them um, did battle with alcohol. And sometimes mm-hmm. it was pretty chaotic for my brother and I. They were good people. They were wonderful people. We felt love, but it was chaos. And sure. um, I say that to you because um, what those circumstances for probably eight years taught me or 10 years taught me um, was that I could rely on my brother. My brother could rely on me. I would be very creative in terms of my resources. And guess what? I use that same mental thinking when I'm dealing with people. I believed in the power mm-hmm. of myself and what I could do. And hence, I kind of transfer that belief system when I'm actually dealing with people in states of crisis. Um, it's no joke as to, or it's no surprise as to why I ended up in the world that I'm in because I think I was being groomed for that as I grew up, mm-hmm. not intentionally. Someone could sure. say, oh, you know, it's a horrible circumstance. Well, yeah, not people have lived through worse, but I guarantee I would not be the person that I am or doing what I'm doing had I not had a chance to understand those resources. 
So I, I think right. I'm quite authentically a positive, you know, glass half full guy. I do want to mention a couple of things in that, and, and yeah. I think that it's it's worthy of our time to consider it. Um, you mentioned a number of the crisis circumstances that we as a small corporation have been involved in and been doing it for years. Um, so I started my career, as you know, um, working in psychiatry with Holocaust survivors, grandchildren, so Auschwitz and Dachau and mm -hmm. such, and no one was doing research on that. So I kind of came into the world, um, into the, the uh, psychiatric world uh, through the window of trauma. And then eventually right. became part of the health team for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I had a chance to work with a lot of Indian residential school survivors across the country. And you think, hmm, how can anyone feel in any way positive about that? So without being in any way disparaging, my point is that with those individuals whom I had a privilege of meeting with over the 37 years, mm -hmm. what we talked about again and again and again were the resources that they learned about in their own lives, their own personal inner resources, their intellectual resources, or their emotional resources. We talked about this earlier in the beginning of the interview, mm -hmm. their community resources. One of the best right. examples that we've ever, ever encountered in our country in recent times um, came, was, was brought to our attention through a book called The Day the World Came to Town. And if people have not read it, I believe it should be required reading for every student in our country. But it, hmm. it spoke to the concept or what actually took place in Gander, Newfoundland after 9-11. We all know it has right. come from away now. But because I work in Gander and I work in Gander frequently with the aviation industry, I know many of those people. I was heading up the largest Canadian team for 9-11. So I know that end of it as well. Spent months there. But right. that was one of the best examples of how it is that people come together where they might not have. Invite perfect strangers into their fold and take care of them because that's a natural inclination. Gander is an amazing place. Mm -hmm. But we see this time and time and time again throughout the globe, not just Canadian, not just North American, sure. throughout the globe we see that, where people come together and support one another. And that's when we're at our best. I truly believe. Right. Does that make any sense to you? No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that you touched on a few points that are, are important. And, and one of it is that, well, you know, the optimism that you have is, it's real, like it's authentic. And I don't think you could survive in your industry as long as you do without it. It would it would just be, you know, just too overwhelming, and the fake positivity would would soon be overshot. Um, but and and the other point was that, you know, in terms of like personal resources, like you believe in your own ability to manage and deal with these situations, even if you're not exactly sure how, you're willing to take that step to be like, okay, let me try this. Let me consider this possibility and see how we can make something work or do whatever it is. Um, and so just on a, a side point, like what would you say is the most intense crisis that you've had to deal with and why? Uh, most intense. Um, yeah. 
I guess that's a bit of a loaded question. I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean more like, you know, like different crises have different problems and different responses and things like that. But what was one of them... And, you know, like, what, do you have any, like, stories about, like, in 9-11, for example, like, that was something that shook the world, mm-hmm. right? It, it wasn't like a, it, it wasn't a normal kind of crisis, just like COVID is something that's shaken the world, right? And it's affected everybody. Nobody isn't affected by it. It's just a matter of how, right? So, like, okay, so let, let's start like this. When you got, who... How did you get the call for after 9-11 happened? Who phoned you or um, how did you get called in and what was it for? I work for an uh, employee assistance program. And uh, through that program, I began to respond to uh, significant corporate crises. So it would be, um, mm. And the corporations, I think, started to know what we were doing and... and uh, equally as important what I was doing because I was always at the helm of those. <clears throat> there weren't many people at that time who organized major crisis response for corporations. And uh, right. so it was just a couple of years before that that I was um, heading a team to Istanbul, Turkey. And I would probably say that that was one of the most intense crisis circumstances I've ever dealt with in my life. And okay. so th- those things, I guess, in our world or in the corporate world, makes news. Um, so, and I'll talk about Istanbul a little bit because it may help to understand, you know, what happens when we're facing yeah. these major crises personally, as well as with the, the corporations we're helping. Um, but having said that, I, I do believe the corporate world is a small world, and more importantly, the corporate HR world is a small world. Um, in as much mm-hmm. as I work and our teams work a lot with emergency services, that wasn't our um, the request for service that came in. There were many, sure. many, many corporations, obviously, within those two, two towers or three towers. If you look at the financial tower as well, uh, tower mm-hmm. three. And uh, so many of them, you know, like Coca-Cola or Deutsche Bank or, you know, the, uh, the, the Procter & Gamble's of the world and, and, and such. Um, they needed to have someone come in and uh, work directly with the employees and the family members and those family members who had lost others and so on. They didn't know where to go. So I got that call probably where our organization got that call probably around 11.15 that morning. And that into a series right. of calls. One call and then, and then they let out. the other CEOs know that Thibault and his team or this organization could come in. So uh, by the time we were done, we probably helped about, we were there to assist about 12 different corporations. Um, so, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is crazy. Sorry, just to like point out that like, I mean, if you have, if you had an office there, yeah. you know, as a, as a big or small company in one of the towers or the buildings rather, and, you know, all of a sudden it's just gone. And a large portion of your staff might be, you know, dead too. And it's like, what, it's just, it's almost unimaginable for someone running a company to be like, what do I do? Everything's just gone. You know, even if it's a massive company, it's like, it's huge and it'll affect the employees 
everywhere in the company because they're it it's you know people feel connected to it so mm-hmm. yeah i just wanted to point out how insane it must have been for those people to have that happen to them well and I think it's a very good word to use because when we think about sanity, we think about those things that we know that are consistent and predictable around us. And then it mm-hmm. feels like the insane is the stuff that we don't fully understand. We, we you know, they come out of left field. Um, no one obviously could have expected that. And right. uh, so, and I'm just talking with those individuals within those buildings. Where it becomes much yeah. more personal um, is where an individual packs up and they go off to work in the morning they kiss their husband or their wife or their partner and, and say, I'll see you at the end of the day. And as per usual, they you know drive away or hop on the subway or whatever it is, say goodbye to the kids if there are kids in the house, and they think it's like any other day. Right. And so, you know, the 11th would be just like the 10th as far as they were concerned. And yeah. then lo and behold, the world is turned completely upside down because of the decisions that other people made and the circumstances that occurred. Um, and, and, that, and it's just like that's that. That's becomes a crisis. What's that? Yeah. No, I say it's just like it that. Is. It's it just is within one, one second. Yeah. Um, there is, I, I want to, so again, New York was a very good example of how yeah. these people came together and it became the foundation of our knowledge and our understanding in my field of the fact that we can, in some way, thank goodness, depend on and count on the fact that people will come together. I believe it's as natural right. as anything else, the formation of community. Um, I want to go back to, because sometimes yeah. corporations, this is a really important point. When we think about communities, we think about clusters of people, different housing areas and so on. And, and, and that is very sure. much a community. Periodically, corporations, good corporations, can serve that role. And uh, probably the one of the best examples is the most significant crisis that I had ever dealt with. And that was back in 1999. It seems like forever now. But it became an important hmm. foundation for, for me and for our organization and for people in the field. So... Um, it was an earthquake that occurred in Istanbul. It was outside in Izmit, and an estimated forty thousand people died. So think about forty thousand people. Jesus. When Janet and I first moved our community in Newmarket, Ontario, years ago, there were thirty-two thousand people. That would mean the entire community plus eight thousand people would have died. And so we called yeah. upon by Procter and Gamble Corporation to go in to try and provide support for their people. They lost about 270 people of their help or thousands of staff. I don't know how many they have. Mm-hmm. And so they would have had family members die and, and so on. <clears throat> so the community itself, I was paying a little bit less attention to the community of Istanbul. And you know, we had hired many people from around the world who were Turkish speaking and Turkish origin to come and support us. I remember flying over the Atlantic and saying to myself, my God, Bill, are you sure you want to do this? You've never responded to an earthquake before. Never been anything so large. You don't even speak the language. You've never been in a community that was at that time still terrorist written. That is absolutely insane. But an interesting thing occurred because that organization Hmm. responded as a community. I brag about them all the time. 
simply because the people within that organization made sure that the people, that their staff and their family members and their kids were taken care of, the grandparents were taken care of, the aunts and uncles were taken care of. Right. They were housed, they were fed, you know, there was, you know, uh, the money made available. They did it all, but they also kept their eye on the greater community. They didn't really need to do that. Mm. I would say, right. you know, it would help their brand. I know they did that because it was the right thing to do. So, right. Amazing. Yeah, greatest crisis I'd ever dealt with. You know, even more significant in terms of numbers than 9-11. But yeah. probably the greatest window of opportunity for me to see the positive side of humanity. Right. And, and that that's enriching for me to witness that mm -hmm. and, and people it's not because bill Thibault says you need to do this no no, no. people are doing yeah. that because that's almost a natural instinct of propensity for them to do. yeah it, it really is and i mean to think about how you just get in you know a matter of you know just on a normal day just something happens massive earthquake and now you have forty thousand dead bodies now i mean just like, never mind dealing how you deal with that, how the people deal with it. Like it, it is, it's almost unimaginable. I mean, I think it is unimaginable unless you were part of it or you went there and experienced it, right? Um, but as you say, like people will commune and they will take care of each other. But so here's where an interesting thought that came to mind is that, you know, with to bring it back to like COVID, right? I've seen just from my exposure and whatever it is that there's a huge amount of community response, but there's also a huge amount of conflict that's happening um, between people in terms. And it's weird because it's like everyone is trying to do the right thing. It's just what the right thing is. They is different, but what people think the right thing to do is, is different. And then they want to, you know, prescribe that to other people. And so the conflict is almost inevitable, but uh, when it's at such a large scale, but so how do you like, how do you deal with different people's um, responses in terms of how best to help other people, you know, cause it's like everyone uh, thinks that, whatever their view is, is right, right? And whatever, whether it is or isn't is is a different point, but it's like, well, when that conflicts with other people, you have two people who are both trying to help, but are now butting heads because they can't see eye to eye because they believe that the right thing to do is different for different people and different reasons, you know? I mean, a simple lock, a simple example is just like how there's different views about lockdown. And now, you know, regardless of whether, um, regardless of the, the fact of the matter, it's like you have one side of people who are like, no, we need a lockdown because it's, that's how you protect people. And then you have other people who are like, but the lockdowns are killing people as well. And I'm not, you know, advocating for one side over another. I'm just saying how everyone is like, no, but this is what will be best for the people. And they are trying to help, but they're, they're butting heads and they're, and there's, it's almost like unresolvable until it just something plays out. 
right? Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Is that like a how I can bring my own experience and and we'll call it for lack of a better word, kind of foundation of understanding to your question. Um, But if we take a look at the, I don't know if we call them polar positions because they, they, sometimes they are polar opposites, but in fact, they may not be. Once again, maybe a good approach to, to informing this question is through kind of an, an, an anecdote, if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, stories are the best. Yeah, well, I think that to me, I learned so much from the archives in here and the archives around yeah. me. And so I go back to, and in the beginning, we all started to do these comparisons between the SARS epidemic and, and, and COVID. And it doesn't take a right. guy like me to remind us that they there are some similarities but they, to an extent they're worlds away so i was very very involved with scarborough grayson general and north york general then they represented the epicenters of the sars epidemic and we'll, we can call it a phase one and phase two and sure. for us at that time that was a very very significant circumstance and you know we lost lives and so on but there's a point that that I wanted to raise an observation that came from that that has played itself out again that that speaks of two very important positions that people are taking and neither of them are really wrong on an emotional social level so there were people in the hospitals at that time and they might have been in the hospitals for let's think about things that are quite significant so someone could be in a palliative position in a hospital, or someone could be delivering a baby. Mm-hmm. So we'll have the beginning and the end of life. And what are our natural propensity when it comes to those types of events is families want to be with that individual who's celebrating the beginning of life, or, or we'll use this term kind of celebrating the end of life. And yet we were not allowed to go in to see people, or more importantly, mm-hmm. the general public could not, I still remember clearly, standing out in front of some of those hospitals when family members were crying and trying to beg the authorities to let them in because their father or their mother was dying. Right. Countless occasions they didn't have a chance to be able to see that. Or I still remember having a conversation with some grandparents who were so enthusiastic about the fact that their daughter was about to have their very first grandchild. And they wanted to be there because they dreamt about it their entire life. So we have those people who are kind of pushing to say, you know, those rules don't make any sense to me. I want to be able to go when I need to be able to do this. I want to be with my family. Yeah. And then you'll have the authorities who are attempting to try and figure out the science behind this, who are are, um, setting a principle and saying, no, we can't allow you to do it. In many ways, both positions are right. Yeah. We're trying to keep the general public safe, absolutely, and everyone knows that. And the other position is right also, that I should be there with my daughter. I should be there with my husband as he's passing. Mm-hmm. So it isn't so much a question of right and wrong, and it isn't even a, it, 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 it appears to be a debate, and it feels like a debate. You know, as they say, a duck by Andrew, the name is still a duck. It's still a debate. Yeah. But 
you've got and where, where it is very different is both impassioned positions have place in this. So back to your question. How, what is it that I do? Well, again, I'm not going to be able to resolve social challenges like sure, yes. Yeah. I'm not smart enough to do that. It's not my position to do that. But I am in a position, like you are, mm-hmm. to be able to stimulate conversation and to right. get people to be able to talk about those positions. And on countless occasions, we do a lot of consulting with the Ontario Association of Cemetery and Funeral Workers. Mm. You can appreciate they have been through an awful lot. <laughs> Crazy. Their families are upset because they haven't had a chance to be able to celebrate the life of, of someone who's passed. Right. Then the the staff and the owners of these organizations have very strict rules and regulations they have to stick to. So how do you yeah. get those two to converse? Like 10-person funerals, you know? <clears throat> exactly. And in the months that we've been locked down or, or immersed in COVID or smothered yeah. by COVID, um, there have been many, many, many people who have lost loved ones directly because of COVID and indirectly. Mm-hmm. And our natural instinct, it's interesting how you started off talking about, you know, in the Jewish community, how natural it is for people to come together, yeah. bring food and so on. Hopefully at the end of this, you and I will figure out why it is it's food that we bring, but, um, <laughs> right. but either way, that's natural for us. Yeah. But it's also natural for us to want to protect and save everybody. And, you know, so where we have these two factions, again, I use polls. I don't think they are polls. These two factions, yeah. both with very strong, valid opinions. We need to get them to talk. Right. And it, 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 once again, I don't want people to misunderstand my role um, because I'm not out there doing that, but I'm helping to kind of structure some of those conversations, even in family systems. Sure. Just high-level discussion that we're talking about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, The point is that what I've learned is that in any of those situations, whether you're talking about COVID or you're talking about, you know, Fort McMurray fires and some of the challenges that occurred there, or you're talking about, you know, any other major crisis, you're going to have people who are of varying opinions. Mm. And we always, I don't know why we do this, we always strive to try and figure out which one is right. Right. You know, and in the circumstances that I was talking about around SARS, and we've seen the same thing with COVID, to an extent, both are right. Right. And both need to be given voice. And I think people look for what's right because they want to know what to do. True. And they want to know how to like, this is just how, what I think about it. It's just, it would make sense to me where people are like, there's so many options available out there of like beliefs that it's like, well, I want to know which is the right one so that I can do that so that it offers the most amount of help or benefit or it offers me and my family the best chance of survival and you know, it, if it, if there's conflict about it and no one's willing to talk because it's so emotionally involved, it becomes a very difficult topic to navigate, right? Yeah. It, 
if we distill it down to some of the most basic and foundational relationships that we have, it might be a spousal relationship, a partner mm. relationship, could be parents with their teenage kids. And both will enter into that. And those would be very common conversations that I'll have with people in my private practice. Once again, both positions are right. And yet sure. people enter into it. It is that they are trying to convince the other person that their position is wrong and theirs is right, and they need to be able to adopt that way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. And it's fraught with um, potential fractures if we approach it from that point of view. So if, for example, we're able to help that um, parental team understand the passion of that 15 or 16 year old son or daughter and you know why it is that they're pushing for something mm-hmm. and they're pushing for something else if we get them to listen and i mean truly listen right sometimes it, it may be that people agree to disagree it may be that there's a greater understanding that is now um, um there's a greater illumination um, of one party's view versus another um, I feel like I'm going to be digressing a little bit, but I want to go back to something that occurred for me personally sure. when I was about 13 years old. And it's only because my mother reported this to me that I, and I, I bet you I've told this story 50 times in my lifetime. I've told it once, but it's meant something to me. Mm-hmm. So my dad, as I mentioned, was a military man, you know, as much as he had his struggles with alcohol periodically. He was, as I said, a good man, very loving and engaged man. Um, So we lived in a small little townhouse in New Brunswick. And on one occasion, my dad and I were sitting at the kitchen table, and my father made a comment. I guess we were in a bit of a debate. Mm -hmm. And he said something that sounded so traditional. Again, I'm 60 years old, so you you can do the math. (laughs) So 47 years ago, I'm sitting there at that table. My father looks at me, and he said to me, now you listen to me, young man. Now, back then, that might have been a relatively common phrase. And, you know, to be able to say, you know, I'm the authority in this household. My opinion counts. Yeah. I bet you, as parents, we might have all said that at one point in time. So what did I say as a 13-year-old? I said, no, Dad, you listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Now, imagine that. I'm sure that I'm went well. <laughs> military officer. Yeah. No, you listen to me. That's uh, pretty great. Yeah, I'm sure that went well for you. Knees are shaking. My mom was just quaking, thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen here? Right. And my father did the wise thing, and he sat back in his chair. I remember this. And he said, okay, tell me. And I explained my position. Mm -hmm. And, again, it is not lost on me that I was a 13-year-old kid having this conversation with Dad. And my dad sat back, and he listened and then he paused at the end and he said, you know what? I understand. You're right, Bill. I understand. And uh, and that was it. It was the end of the conversation. I, and, and it was kind of like, we're good. Yeah, we're great. Fantastic. Yeah. And typical of me, I would get up and I gave him a hug and a kiss on the cheek. And I said, Dad, I got to get out. You know, the boys are playing some hockey. And that was it. Right. When I left the room, apparently my mom said that my dad looked at her and said, oh, my God, is he ever growing up? So 
What's the lesson learned that was a carryover for me is that first of all, in a lot of the conflicts that we have, we never ever take the time to try and understand or at least listen to the other person's position. Yeah. And where it doesn't necessarily need need to be, or excuse me, we don't need to be convinced of the other person's opinion. We just need to be able to try and understand it. And knowing that position might help us to better kind of calm the debate a little bit and even allow us a little bit of malleability and flexibility in that relationship. Right. Crisis circumstances. Sometimes, Shane, the crisis circumstances force that dialogue. Yeah. If we're wise, we'll allow it to force the dialogue. And so those conflictual positions I talked about earlier on, were people actually able to go in and see their loved ones? They weren't. They weren't able to do it because ministry yeah. policy and, and health would say we can't. But there were times where those same doctors and nurses who were having to tell the loved ones that they couldn't see them, they were in tears themselves. Yeah. Because they Cause knew they, yeah. they my loved one, I want to be there. But they also knew that they need to keep people alive. Yeah. So Terrible decisions. Difficult decisions, absolutely. But if not for that conversation, the parent, grandparent looking to see the baby, yeah, the spouse looking to see her husband, would not ever, ever guess that that doctor, that nurse, that administrator really gets it. Yeah, because they, they see them as an enemy. Yeah, and then they see them as a human. Yeah, and it, it, I think it, it's the empathy that's the what you know the key part of it and when there is like empathic failure um because of high emotion or just you know not taking the time to listen like then there's no conversation to be had but as you say it's when people are able to just listen and truly listen to what the other person is saying and where they're coming from that's when there's a connection because there's understanding that can come through that right and then the two polar opposites don't seem so polar anymore. They're just people trying to make the best of what they've got to deal with, right? And the decisions that they have to make. And we have the capacity to do that as human beings. We do if we choose to. Definitely. When uh, Janet and I had our 30th anniversary about three years ago, mm -hmm. we went to Hawaii and we met a couple nice. there. And we were out on the beach and we seemed to get along really well. And eventually he said, well, why don't you guys come up and go to a beer? Like, cause there's a brewery around here. I'll go and get a, a micro beer. So we did, we sat down and we enjoyed our conversation. And then we went out and had some dinner a bit later. And, and I'm the, the least political guy you'll ever meet in your entire life. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, we were sitting there and we were talking and, and I discovered that they were Republicans from, a, you know, from the United States. And um, Janet and I are just probably not of that ilk at all. And um, the other part of it is that they were um, uh, gun rights supporters. And again, it's probably, it's not the thing that Janet and I would probably support, but either way. Yeah. And there was this very, very slight, and I emphasize slight pause at the table when we discovered our different positions. Mm-hmm. And then he looked at me and I looked at him and, and we said, does that make any difference? I said, not really. Yeah. And meaning that we started to talk about our marriages. 
we talked about our, our children who are evolving and becoming adults. We talked about our priorities in life and how hard we worked and how we tried to teach our children right from wrong. And we had such an enjoyable evening yeah. talking about those things we all had in common, whereas that could have stopped us in our path. So it's almost like the two people outside of that hospital who never bothered to talk, we'd never understand what the commonality was. Right. Right? Does it and make you any can... sense to you that part of the thing that continues to attract me to do what I do and have done for you know almost 40 years and will continue to do is the fact that as someone comes in to see or I go to see them, there are many, there are many, many, many more similarities between us than there are dissimilarities. A hundred percent, yeah. There but four could be me. Yeah, I think that the overwhelming majority of people are similar in certain fundamental ways about being human and wanting to live the best life for themselves and generally for others and for their kids and, you know, just do the best they can with what they got. And it, it totally makes sense to me that one of the parts that attracts you is discovering that with people, right? And enabling the conversation that people might not be willing to have without some kind of mediator or something like that there because uh, for whatever reason, right? But that when it comes down to it, yeah, you you can be friends, you can be good friends with someone who's got very different beliefs to you and that's fine and you can have conversation and you don't have to convince the other person of anything, right? You can just be like, let me just explain where I'm coming from. I'll listen to where you're coming from. Maybe I'll learn some stuff. Maybe nothing changes. But either way, there's so much more that we have in common in terms of, as you say, just like being a family and wanting the best for um, our children and, and our societies and things like that. And maybe our opinions differ on how that exactly will go. But that's okay because we're all different people right and we're gonna have different views like that and so i think that it's a really and it, it's a i think it's a good point for us to end on here today as well is that conversation can happen and you can be friends or involved with or whatever with people who have different opinions to you and that's okay and you can allow them to have their opinions and they can allow you to have yours and then through that discussion um and through, you know, empathizing with the other person and listening and not trying to overpower them with something you disagree with or, you know, interrupting people in conversation because they made a point that doesn't sit well with you. It's like, whatever, just let them have their point. Like, it's not going to affect you. Just, you know, hear them out. And then afterwards, you can be like, okay, well, maybe I disagree with this point, but that's fine. I, I, there's stuff I do that you're going to disagree with, and that's fine too. Like, that's the diversity of the world, which is beautiful, right? Um, yeah. And I think that, like, you know, for COVID and things like that, like, it just, it is important to have conversations with people. And I know people are, it's a bit tired now at this point in time. Like, people are a bit sick of talking about it, but you can't really be at the point where if you're trying to get things done, like, there needs to be conversation to uh to resolve anything 
right? Otherwise, there's just, you know, things come together and then they'll just separate and be at war with each other. And the only way is to really allow people to have their views, but still engage them in in some significant conversation and to and empathy you know i think that's just be empathetic to other people they've come from such a different world to you you don't know what they're what what they're feeling or what they're going through what they're thinking and if you give them a chance to explain it to you then you might learn something right well i think that we spend even in some of these discussions we spend too much time thinking about the differences between us. Yeah. When I I truly believe that there are far, far, far more similarities. Definitely. All we need to do is go to two places in order to find this out. Go to a go to a high school or a university graduation, and you'll have thousands of people there, all with different views, all celebrating with tears in their eyes as their child crosses. Yeah. Or you need to go to a nursery and a hospital. And watch as parents and grandparents come and look in the window. And it doesn't matter what their race is, doesn't matter what their color is, doesn't matter what their political beliefs are, doesn't yeah. matter any of that. And they'll all be sitting there in awe and crying. And there are more things that are common than there are differences, even in times like this. Yeah. And that's the thing that we always need to put that becomes the foundation of any great discussion. Yeah. And and it's just you're right. It's just coming together in the celebration of life, you know. In common. Yeah, and 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 you're right. There's there's definitely so much more that we have in common with everyone than we have than we are different. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, listen, Bill. It's been a pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been, a, it's been an honor, Shane. And great to see you again. You as and well. I, I I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Me too. Thanks. And I'll put links to your website and your team's website in the description of the of the audio, the video that people watch so that they can check you out if they want. They can ask questions if they need to. So. All right. Thanks again. Thanks. Hey. All, All right. right. Bye.